Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Sophia Dorothea of Zella. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. This is going to be a long one, I think, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely had to write that down. Hello and welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Follow us on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Now, this week we are reviewing Sophia Dorothea of Tsela, the wife to the first Hanoverian monarch, George I, but not actually the consort. What? All will be explained over the course of the episode, but essentially we or I, decided it was an interesting and relevant story to cover, even though she's, Mm. as we see, technically not a consort. So we'll find out who she was, who she wasn't, and what's going on. (laughs) Biography! Sophia Dorothea was born on the 15th of September, 1666, just a week or so after the Great Fire of London. That's interesting, because I I feel um, like we're very much modern now that you're saying about George the First, yes, yeah. 1666 fe- mm. belongs still to Elizabeth to me, even though it's not. Well, yeah, 63 years after Elizabeth died, but the same se- any century that's touched by her. Yes, her <laughs> it's close. Uh, and she's born in the Duchy of Zeller, which is in Lower Saxony, so northern Germany, uh, and the daughter mm-hmm. of George William, Duke of Brunswick-Lundberg, and Eleanor Desmier Dolbruce. Oh, I'm in trouble, Graham. <laughs> well, it's a Georgian and Eleanor. Oh, fine. In the late 17th century, Germany is not yet actually a country, so instead we've got a collection of duchies, principalities and mini-states all within the Holy Roman Empire. Well, that's still dragging on, is it? It is. Now, by 1701, which is within the period of this episode, Prussia uh, will become dominant mm. and a proper country that is the forerunner to Germany. But at this point... Duchies, they're all very much in flux, regularly change ownership in a way that, as you'll see, does actually quite significantly impact uh, Sophia's story. Sophia Dorothea's father was the second of four sons, quite a carefree bachelor who actually wriggles his way out of a betrothal to Sophia of the Palatinate, who's a granddaughter of James I. However, when his older brother dies, having expanded the sort of family territories to include the Duchy of Zella, there's suddenly a lot of responsibility on George William's shoulders, Sophia's father. 
So he chooses to cede some of his territories to his two younger brothers, particularly the youngest one, Ernest, who had done him quite a big favour by marrying Sophia of the Plantinet in his place. What's just happened there? Sophia, Dorothea's father, George William. Yeah. Carefree bachelor, living the life of Riley. Older brother dies, suddenly everything falls to him. So he's like, yeah. tell you what, I'm, I'm going to keep some of this for funsies, but younger brothers, you guys take on some of the other bits and bobs and do the work. But when he was previously ref- uh, betrothed to this Sophia of the Platinates yeah. to avoid a diplomatic incident in just dumping her, his younger brother Ernest just takes his place and marries her instead. Does him a favour. Yeah. So we've got George William, who is chilled out, wants to be a bachelor. Brother number three only has daughters, so the plan is that actually everything will go to brother number four, the youngest one, Ernest. Right. God, he struck out, didn't he? <laughs> it did, yeah. I mean, I don't know what that phrase means and whether it's appropriate, but you know what I mean. Mm. Wow. It might actually mean the opposite. I think struck isn't struck out when you don't get luck. He struck gold. Yeah. Struck gold, yeah. Mm. It's just sort of vaguely... <laughs> 80s American slang. God, he really booed and yard at that, didn't he? <laughs> George Williams fine with this. They've decided, yeah, everything goes to Ernest. He's the ambitious one. He's the one that really wants to work for this. So in support of this, George William actually pledges to remain unmarried. So there'll be no danger of any squabbles oh, over like, inheritance. Yeah, yeah. It's all going to Ernest. That's, yeah. You're doing me such a good favour. Promise to you, not even... Yeah. yeah. Until 1665, when the grand plan comes under threat because George William does something decidedly unexpected, he falls in love. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, neither had he. (laughs) 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 And uh, the focus of his uh, ardour is Eleanor Desmier Dolbruz, who is, I don't know why I'm saying Dolbruz as if she's Scottish. She's a beautiful daughter of a Huguenot family of lower nobility, um, and they're exiled from the court of Louis XIV, end up at the court of Cassel, which is where he catches sight of her. Uh, And Eleanor follows the Anne Boleyn playbook, so she refuses to surrender her honour in becoming his mistress, which naturally, like Henry VIII, inflames his passions to such a height, the only solution is to marry her. Mm. It's a well-worn, it's a good tactic, isn't it? And... Sort of similar to Henry VIII, there is a problem there. In this case, because he promised Brother Ernest that he was not going to get married. And here he is getting married. Yeah. Thankfully, though, a compromise is found because it's just a morganatic marriage. So that means they are legitimately married within the eyes of the church, but Eleanor doesn't have any rights uh, in terms of succession to lands and titles, nor do any of his children. God, what a cynical sort of... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what I find more cynical, the idea that actually marriage is a totally a financial thing or splitting it apart and being able to do the two separately. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's nice in a way, isn't it? He's saying, look, I don't want to cause any trouble. I just genuinely want to marry this woman. Yeah, I think I'm thinking about it too much. I think that's it, isn't it? It's quite a nice thing of being able to say that without getting anyone into trouble because <laughs> he'd made a deal. <laughs> Yeah, useful. I'll take that. Uh, and they seem to have been uh, very happily married, living something of a sort of bourgeoisie life. Uh, Sophia Dorotea is born the next year. Um, Eleanor has no official title or status because of the morganatic marriage, other than being given the honorary title Lady of Harburg. So this sort of means that she's a little bit more free to live without having to worry about some of the expectations of society. So she personally raises Sophia, who seems to have been adored and indulged by both parents. 
Uh, so Sophia Dorothea grows into a beautiful young woman. She's got dark brown, almost black hair, uh, very large eyes. Uh, she's quite cultured and sophisticated. She's got French tastes and a passion for fashion. Mm, I mean, that's that's definitely a uh, euphemism, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like being tired and emotional when you get sacked. And you... <laughs> or, no, you're drunk, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you might get tired and emotional when you get sacked. <laughs> In both senses. Yeah. I mean, but you would be tired and emotional then. <laughs> um, although not an heir to her father's title, she does come with a substantial dowry because her father's very rich. Um, so she's still a, quite an attractive marriage, marriage prospect, even though she's not technically going to inherit Zella. Oh, right. Oh, okay. So it's still... Oh, so you still get something for it. That's quite annoying, actually. Hmm. As far as my cynical arguments go. <laughs> well, I mean, he's just a rich man. Her father. Yeah, he can carry the way. So, Sophia Dorothea is betrothed in uh, 1665, uh, 1675, um, only for her intended to die in battle the following year. Oh, they're not still doing that nonsense, are they? Oh, there's lots of battles, yeah, in the in this this part of the world, <laughs> in Europe. Oh, okay, yeah, this, that's that whole fractured thing we were talking about. We've so um, got Germany, German states, the Scandinavia, Louis XIV, there's almost constant warfare. Uh, so she loses that prospective husband and she then they do then struggle a bit so there's still people who are interested but they're not quite managing to seal the deal and perhaps her same sort of semi-legitimate status is kind of a stumbling block you're not fully sure mm. what you're getting and is it yeah, worth it's it or not, not? Clear. Mm. Yeah. however her parents are able to mitigate this obstacle her father establishes uh, as i said a huge dowry for her and he keeps putting more money into it um nice. and her mother seems to be very good at uh, about PR and uh, working the room. So she establishes close links to the Holy Roman Emperor and persuades George William to offer substantial military support to the Emperor in the various wars that are going on. So mm. in return, the Holy Roman Emperor gives his assent when George William decides to declare the marriage fully lawful. So it's no longer just a morganatic... Well, as in it's no longer just a morganatic marriage. It's a full-on, she's just oh, right. my normal, legally wedded wife with no yeah. caveat or asterisks. So it's combining those two bits now. So Sophia Dorothea is now his heir and she becomes the princess of Brunswick Lundberg Zeller. Okay. All right, now we've started. Mm. Good for her, less so for Brother Ernest in Hanover. Mm. Now relations between Zeller and Hanover have been increasingly tense in recent years. So Sophia of the Palatinate, so that's now Ernest's wife, but the one that was spurned by George William... Mm. Bit of tension mm. there, as you can imagine. Mm. She snobbishly describes Eleanor as a little clot of dirt. Oh, it's got it's going one way, isn't it? Now there was a chance to be grown up, and we could manage this. Hmm. Oh dear. But now the personal tensions become political because Sophia Dorothea's future husband will almost certainly want to lay claim to George William's titles now that it's a properly legit marriage between her parents, mm. and that will break up the grand inheritance which had been promised to Ernest in Hanover. Mm. So all the promises, all the grand lay plans are suddenly just gradually starting to break apart. Mm. Now, Ernest is a highly ambitious chap, and he's working to have Hanover ele uh, elevated to elector status in the empire, which, again, won't go into too much, but basically it's one of the sort of the top people in this huge realm of different mini-states. The elector ones are the really important ones that pick the, re the empire, so... He wants Hanover to really be right at the top table, and losing all this territory or rather not gaining it as expected, will undermine a lot of his hard work. Mm. 
Thankfully, though, Ernest is a pragmatic man, so the solution is very clear. Sophia Dorothea's husband is going to claim all of her lands, so the best thing to do is marry his son, George Louis, to Sophia Dorothea. And that ensures that all the money, all the titles and all the land will stay very much in the family, given that they are, of course, first cousins. Oh, God. Right. Now, the fathers, brothers, as they know, are very pleased with themselves. They've sorted everything out nicely. Good diplomatic work here, marriage alliance. Mothers both have misgivings. Mm. Beside their own tensions, of course, it's also very clear to them that their children are going to be ill-matched. So Sophia Dorotea is uh, 16 at this point, very outgoing. She enjoys playful conversation, cheerful company, extravagant entertainment, very cultured, as we said. In contrast, George Louis, who's 22, is extremely reserved, quite a dour personality. His idea of a good time apparently being a quiet game of cards for low stakes after a heavy supper. While one observer noted he was ordinarily neither cheerful nor friendly, his words have to be squeezed out of him. I think we'd get on. <laughs> I like the sound of him. Like no, I like I like people whose company it's comfortable to be silent in, <laughs> and have a nice, uh, nice big um, slap up and game of cards. Not for anything. Off heavy. to bed. <laughs> Off to bed. However, the enormous dowry on offer is enough to uh, convince Sophia the Platinate that they've got, got to take the deal despite her misgivings so she writes that Sophia Dorotea would find in my son the most pig-headed stubborn boy who ever lived who has round his brain such a thick crust that I defy any man or woman <laughs> ever to discover what is in them he does not care much for the match itself but 100,000 talas a year have tempted him as they would have tempted anybody else oh I like the cut of her jib <laughs> Uh, Sophia Dorothea herself, however, is not quite so acquiescent. She already knows of her cousin's character and uh, declares on hearing of the betrothal that she would have to be dragged to the altar. And when she saw her father carrying a painted miniature of George Louis, she snatched it from his hands, flung it, flung it against the wall, shouting, I will not marry the pig snout! Oh, imagine that. Uh, those, those tensions and that emotion, that'd be absolutely awful. Mm. Uh, of course she did marry him. Uh, in 1682, yeah. and actually things begin surprisingly well. Um, she quickly charms her uncle, stroke father-in-law, Ernest, uh, and the birth of a son the following year very much cements her status in Hanover. Straight away, son and heir, born. Okay, so could they actually divorce at this point? Uh, well, you never really want to, because then there's question marks over the legitimacy of the okay. children, etc. But, you know, done a job, got the son. Uh she enjoys a lot of the grand celebrations that Ernest is regularly laying out um, at sort of palaces in Hanover, such as Herrenhausen, because he wants to demonstrate Hanover's magnificence as part of his campaign to get the elector mm. status. Um, and Sophia the Platinate, despite her misgivings about her daughter-in-law, does seem to try to help her settle in at court. Oh, that's nice. Mm. So she's sort of taking her enemy's daughter under her wing and mm. seeing the good. Yeah. Her husband, George Louis, is often away on military campaigns, but given his personality, it's probably not actually a bad thing that he's not often there. <laughs> um, yeah. In 1686, Ernest invites her to join the rest of the family when they go on an extended holiday to Italy, which she seems to have greatly enjoyed. They were there for a carnival. She has oh, a rocking nice. good time. Uh, George Louis joins them, and the following year, a second child, a daughter, is born. Oh, this is looking up, isn't it? So, we sort of, in some ways, we're ticking a lot of boxes of things going well, but unfortunately, these are rare highlights. 
Sophia Dorotea, she's used to a very relaxed environment in Sella and she's struggling to adapt to life in Hanover, which is ruled by pomp and protocol modelled on uh, Louis XIV's court at Versailles. Mm. As always. She just largely ignores it and does her own thing, with one courtier describing her as une beauté tyrannique. Tyrannical beauty? Hmm. Why is she tyrannical? I guess, I guess, you know, she's sort of this sort of beautiful figure that just does whatever she wants and isn't... Uh, Oh, rather like Can't be that. tamed. Good. And what's more, she and George, as predicted, hate each other. Oh, no. He frequently upbraids her for failing to observe Hanoverian etiquette, resulting in uh, frequent loud and bitter arguments. Mm. Uh, he then humiliates her by taking a full-time mistress, Melusine von der Schulenberg, which in itself is not unusual, but he breaks convention by flaunting his mistress publicly, as well as very clearly having no respect for Sophia Dorotea as his wife. Mm. Uh, she breaks convention as well by showing how furious she is about this uh, so during one argument uh, she follows him into his study to continue an argument that they were having and he becomes so enraged that he throws her to the ground and tries to throttle her until some attendants have to come and intervene oh lordy uh, well at this point his mother does step in she urges George to be more discreet with his affair, more publicly respectful towards Sophia Dorotea I put on a show for the cameras uh, and she also speaks to Sophia Dorotea in turn, telling her, from personal experience, mistresses are a fact of life. You should just look the other way, make the best of it. Yeah, I mean, as much as that, those morals are different to today, they are both being a bit childish. Like, being an adult <laughs> is restraining yourself in various ways mm. from being the raw monkey that lies beneath. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't seem to be doing that. Well, Sphere Dorotea does then look the other way, uh, but not quite in the manner that was advised, because the other way that she looked was to embark on an affair of her own. Oh, right. Okay. With the Swedish aristocrat, Philip von Konigsmark. Uh, he's handsome, witty, charismatic, essentially everything her husband isn't. Played by... Uh, what's it called? I want to say Max Bonyman, but that's not right. <laughs> He's like got <laughs> something like that. He's married to Alicia Vikander. She's a Swedish actress. This is where my yes. mind went. Uh, Michael Fassbender. Fassbender. Uh, that's it. <laughs> Max Bodyman. <laughs> it's pretty close. <laughs> I mean, it's in the right. They, if they were friends, you wouldn't bat an eyelid. <laughs> Catherine Curzon, historian, described him as the quintessential roguish hero, a soldier and adventurer with looks and charm to spare, an equal mixture of Mars and Adonis, according to his adoring sister. Perfect. I mean, if that isn't Max Bowleyman, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> wow, OK, so what a, um, what a prize. Mm. Uh, so they'd, they'd actually known each other as children, but their relationship only really starts after 1689 when Philip comes to Hanover to serve in the army. Mm. So by this point, Sophia Dorotea's marriage definitely broken down. She's a very miserable and isolated figure to court. Oh. Um, it's slow to begin, though. She keeps him at arm's length initially, though she does give him permission to write to her when he was sent to the front uh, in 1690. Uh, but Philip's rather anguished letters to her suggest he couldn't cope when she wasn't writing with the frequency he seemed to require. And she still remains cautious when he comes back to Hanover. It's only in 1692 after a battle at Namur, when her feelings are fully awoken, when she spends several days waiting to hear if he has survived, 
because they're very heavy casualties and she doesn't hear any news about him mm. for some time. So she wrote to him, not knowing whether he was actually alive or not, saying, I hate King William, i.e. the third, who is the cause of it all. He breaks my heart by thus risking all I have in the world. Oh, well, it's nice that they're feeling um, emotions again, but that must be awful. I mean, mm. like any any war. Well, Hamoud is transformed when she hears that he is unharmed, and it's after this, it seems, that their affair began. Uh, so it's a sensual, emotional, and not especially discreet love affair. Mm. So uh, their letters reveal them both to be very sensitive, highly strung characters, lots of florid letters, decla- declarations of undying love, regular outbursts of jealousy over nothing in particular. Mm. And they also conducted their affair with what one historian has deemed the most extraordinary abandon. So they entrust letters to servants. Sophia Dorotea leaves notes in his hat and gloves, which are obviously just, you know, left in a quite public area and hallway, so anyone could happen upon them. But nevertheless, rumours do very, very quickly spread everywhere mm. about it. So many people try in vain to urge caution on them, but always falls on deaf ears. One attempt by uh, Sophia Dorotea's mother-in-law, Sophia the Platinate, to gauge her feelings towards Philip see Sophia Dorothea get completely the wrong end of the stick. Mm. She praises you so highly that were she younger, I should be jealous. I really think she's fond of you. Ah. Ah. How old is she at this point? Ooh, she's sort of uh, early to mid-twenties. Okay. Mid-twenties. Yeah. levels. Hmm. Uh, so instead, they have to make sort of subtle efforts to force them apart. So Philip sent off to fight the Danes uh, as part of the army, kill not just to one man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is Max Ponyman. He can do anything. <laughs> Let's send in Max Ponyman. <laughs> While Severe Dorotea is just sent on trips to visit George's relatives with sort of ladies to keep an eye on her. Lord, they're trying to kill her too. However, opportunities are always to be found. Ernest finally achieves his dream of having Hanover granted elector status. Mm-hmm. So he takes the whole family to Berlin to mark the occasion. But Sophia Dorothea feigns illness, yeah. meaning she has to stay behind where she can frolic with Philip. Oh, nice. Mm. Well, the um, cat's away at uh, European Union Summit. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> so they start making plans to elope. So Sophia Dorothea starts having a look at things, uh, but on inspecting her marriage contract, she's horrified to discover that she actually has no financial provision in her own name. Oh, dear. He, George, is absolutely master of everything, for there is nothing I can dispose of without his consent. Even the clause about my dower is so badly worded that they can easily cheat me and take it away. Hmm. This, of course, is because the whole point of the marriage is to make sure that everything goes to her husband, George, Mm. to keep all the territories together. Uh, She asked her father for an independent income, but he isn't able to comply because there's a war against Denmark, um, meaning he's both short of cash and with the troops not a million miles away, also does really need the support of Hanover in case he gets invaded. Mm. 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 And what's more, Philip is living beyond his means. He's accrued considerable gambling debts uh, and rumours of the affair are prohibiting his advancement in the Hanoverian army. Oh, gosh. Stuck. Mm. However, when an old friend inherits the Duchy of Saxony, Philip is now made a major general in that army and suddenly prospects are greatly improved. Oh, he just goes to a different territory Mm. where he's got a mate. Yeah. And takes vision. Oh, right, okay. Hmm. This is, I mean, this sort of fractious 
nature of uh, these territories does present a lot of opportunities to the right people. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're a very limited pool of people. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so Philip proceeds to get roaringly drunk and regales the Saxony court oh. with insults about the Hanoverian court. So how the elector's mistress, Clara von Platen, or Platen uh, uses milk baths and excessive makeup to hide her fading beauty, while Prince George is a fool for taking so drab a mistress when he has such a beautiful wife. Oh. Hmm. Naturally, news of this comes back to Hanover, leading George to storm into Severe Dorotea's rooms, demanding an explanation. She, of course, doubles down tells him that he and his father were laughing stocks for being in the pockets of their mistresses. Uh, and once again, George gets violent, throttles uh, Sophia Dorotea almost unconscious until her lady uh, drags him off. Who is this dude? This is future George I. Oh. Right. Now, George is set to leave court uh, to visit his sister in Berlin, and he tells Sophia Dorotea that before he leaves, this constraint is too much. On my return, I shall write to your father and demand a separation. First sensible thing he's done all episode. Yeah, so on one level, um, that's good news, really. Sophia Dorothea wants out of the marriage, of course. So does George. Good. Probably the best thing that can happen. Yeah. However, after twice being physically abused by him, um, she understandably doesn't really want to wait around for his return and to trust that he yeah. will settle things a way that's good for her. So instead, she slips away in the middle of the night, rides to her parents at Cellar, begs for their support. Mm. Uh, her mother is horrified and agrees, but her father, very much mindful of the diplomatic situation, uh, says no. Oh, and the only gracious. reason she doesn't go straight back to Hanover is because, uh, basically, on advice of the court doctor, that says she's exhausted and needs to rest. Why don't she go to um, Max Bonyman? Uh, oh, he's off fighting the Danes again. Oh, is he? Right. <laughs> that, is, that is one of the drawbacks. <laughs> you know what you're getting when you sign up to life with Max Bonyman. <laughs> it's that kind of life, babe. And off he goes. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> so after a few months, she is then sent back to Hanover. And uh, she's going to go oh. back to Ernest and uh, Sophia at Herrenhausen. So there'll be a sort of public performance of unity lest anyone think her absence was because of any internal conflict. But instead, she defies the protocol and orders her coach to take her instead to the palace at Leinschloch, where she feigns illness and waits for Philip to come. I mean, it's a trick that's worked before, isn't it? Now, unfortunately, their elopement plans uh, are widely suspected. As I said, they're not really subtle about anything, so news of everything gets around. Anyway, their plans are widely suspected, not least by one of the women that Philip had denigrated whilst drunk in Saxony, the mistress of Ernest, Clara von Platen. Uh, now, she has long resented Sophia Dorothea, who'd sort of deliberately sought to outshine her in dress and appearance once she mm. arrived in Hanover. Uh, and Clara also has had her own tryst with Philip, but is now particularly irked because he had refused to marry her daughter. Mm. So she's looking for an opportunity to uh, bring them both down a peg or two. But because Ernest has remained very fond of uh, Sophia Dorotea and resistant to all criticism of her, uh, Clara hasn't got anywhere. But if she can prove that an elopement is planned, which, as I said, will be a PR disaster for Hanover, mm. that will be enough. She'll be able to get him on board. So Clara sends Philip a letter purporting to be from Sophia Dorotea asking him to come and visit. Mm. On arrival, it's a bit confusing when Sophia says, I didn't write, and he's like, oh, this is weird. But nevertheless, obviously they chat, and he tells her, I've got a carriage waiting, 
let's go make a run for it, head off to Wolfenbüttel. <laughs> I'm with you all the way to the last word, Philip. Where are we going? Wolfenbüttel. Okay. Uh, and she says yes, but she wants to wait a day so that she can say goodbye to the children. Of course, she's got two children here. Yeah. Mm. Oh. Now, of course, because Clara has sent that letter, she set it all up. Her spies are in place. They're watching and listening to everything. So she is able to tell Ernest that there is a formal plan to elope in place. So Ernest agrees. Philip's going to have to be arrested. Uh, so Philip sneaks back into the palace but finds the door leading to Sofia Dorotea's rooms locked. Uh-oh. And he then turns around to find himself surrounded by four of Clara's men. Oh, man. He's surrounded, so obviously he tries to fight his way out, but is overpowered. He's Max Boneyman. He's what? Max Boneyman, of course. This <laughs> <laughs> is too to much fight. even for Max Boneyman. That is outrageous. These guys must be, um, well, their own type of superhero. Uh, so he's overpowered, but instead of being arrested... He is hacked to death. What? Oh, this is this is totally two centuries ago stuff. Some accounts of Clara then kicking Philip as he lay dying. Uh, but quickly she seems to have panicked, realising that she had somewhat exceeded her brief, given that Ernest had only said to arrest him. This woman's a psychopath. So she goes back and tells Ernest all about it. He's furious, but obviously, once again, PR, so orders all traces of the murder to be suppressed. Yeah, I mean, this is absolute power stuff. So there are varying accounts of what became of Philip's body, but the most accepted version is that he was put in a sack and weighted down with stones before being thrown into the river. And this is George the First, uh, his wife? Yes, yes. Where's George the First in this? Uh, he's in Berlin visiting his sister. Yes. The four assassins have their silence bought, so Ernest provides them with unexplained huge bonuses, something like a hundred times their annual salaries. Gosh. But, as you're saying, struggling to place these events in a century. Mm. To quote, not for the first time, uh, Blackadder, these aren't the days of Alfred the Great. You can't lop someone's head off and blame it on the Vikings. Yeah. Oh, man, they put it so well. That's exactly what I mean. What's going on? I know where these aren't democracies, but on the same hand, they're, they're tempered powers now, right? Mm. Uh, you know, and Philip is a well-respected soldier and diplomat. He'd served at numerous courts across Europe, including England. Uh, and obviously people want to know where he's gone, not least his friend and actual employer, the Elector of Saxony. Well, everyone's waiting for the next movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the Elector of Saxony sent an envoy to conduct an inquiry to find out what's happened to his major general. Yeah. Hanover deny all knowledge of his whereabouts and actually complain to the Holy Roman Emperor about Saxony's unfriendly acts and threaten to withdraw troops from the Grand Alliance against Louis XIV. Oh, panic, gaslighting, Trumpian mm. stuff. Yeah. So in turn, William III of England becomes concerned at the impact this will all have because this is essentially his Grand Alliance against Louis XIV. Oh, my God. So we've got... Okay. So at this point, we've got the Penguin about to investigate the death of Max Boneyman, played by um, that fellow. <laughs> right. Well, in this case, uh, the Penguin gives a very different order. He just wants the Alliance back together. So he basically gets his envoy to speak to the Elector of Saxony and say, don't you think that maybe you're actually quite satisfied with the explanation from Hanover and we can all move on and forget about Max Boneyman? Hmm. 
Do and they that, take that advice? And, that, and they take mm. that advice. Max Bony Man is forgotten. The bigger question, though, is what to do with Sophia Dorotea. Mm. Now, for a while, she doesn't know what's happened, but she's placed under effective house arrest and barred from seeing her children. Uh, she rages against her imprisonment until her inquisitor, Count von Platen, i.e. Clara's husband, mm. tells her of Philip's death and the discovery of the incriminating letters and basically that she's in a whole heap of trouble. Mm. Uh, Sophia Dorotea collapses with grief and uh, Ernest mm. places her on suicide watch before then sending her to uh, Alden Castle in her father's territories while they try to come up with a solution. Crikey. She could, she could be um, disappeared as well. Well, the problem is, could, um, one, obviously it's his niece, so his brother's daughter, but also they don't want the truth of the affair to emerge. They don't want the public embarrassment. And also, obviously, you can't uh, claim to know nothing about what's happened to Philip von Konigsmark, mm. but also take action against <laughs> Sophia for having an affair with him. Oh, yeah, we yeah, know yeah. nothing about why he's disappeared, but we do know that we're going to come down pretty hard on Sophia for having an affair with him. <laughs> Coincidentally. Yeah. Oh, true. So um, what they need, she's actually got all the power then here. She, they need, need her to go out in public and say, yeah, everything's fine. Well, exactly. So that is what they offer. They say that despite everything, they will overlook the indiscretions if she returns to George uh, and in public resumes her wifely duties. Okay. Gosh, this is dark, isn't it? It is. And the thing is that Sophia Dorotea is, understandably, absolutely determined to get out of the marriage, so unequivocally refuses the offer. We declare that we still adhere to our oft-repeated resolution never to cohabit matrimonially with our husband, and that we desire nothing so much as that separation of marriage requested by our husband may take place. Yeah, what's the point in this? Mm. I mean, she is cool. So there was never actually a formal trial as such, but instead an ecclesiastical court heard a case for divorce on the grounds of Sophia Dorotea's incompatibility of temper added to some little failings of character uh, and principally her refusal to live with George, i.e. desertion rather than adultery. So all all her fault? Yes, but nothing to do with the affair. They're not mentioning that at all. It's the fact that she's refusing to live with him. So desertion. Does the throttling even come up? No, it doesn't come up. The fact that he's been abusing her and obviously uh, unfaithful to her is uh, not a concern for the ecclesiastical court. Mm. Uh, As you said, she is eager to enter the marriage. Ultimately, she does decide to admit her guilt, hoping to retire from the world and live with her mother at Zella and basically just get out. Yeah. However, uh, she had been deceived. So the marriage is dissolved on the 28th of December 1694 and George is given leave to remarry. But as the guilty party, Sophia Dorotea is not allowed to remarry. Does she want to? Uh, well, she might want to. Obviously, their concern is that the whole point of the marriage is that the uh, seller inheritance isn't diverted away from Hanover. So mm. can't have a remarrying. Now, once the verdict has been reached, it's a case of damnatio memoriae. So Severe Dorotea becomes a non-person. Her name is struck out of prayers. Portraits are taken down and destroyed. Her two children, aged 11 and 7, are put into George's care and she is never allowed to see them again, nor is her name mentioned to them. And they are not allowed to speak of her again. God, that's so, I mean, so vengeful. And she herself is then sent back to uh, Alden under strict confinement 
So the castle is guarded 24 hours a day by 40 men-at-arms, of whom 5 to 10 would be on duty at any one time. All her household attendants are appointed by Ernest, swearing an oath to watch her every move and uh, anything suspect is to be re- uh, reported to the governor. No visitors are permitted and her only contact with her family are a series of paintings hung on her walls. That is ghastly. For the first few months, she's not even allowed to go outside, though this is relaxed from 1695, so she gets a half-hour walk and carriage rides under close guard. And no one knows that this is even happening. It's not like a she's re- movement around Europe. She's decided to retire to live in the country. Mm. It does sound quite nice. Even within the castle, certain areas are out of bounds. So on one occasion, a fire broke out, and as her only route of escape was to cross a forbidden gallery, she actually just stands terrified in the threshold, clutching a box oh. of jewellery until someone comes along to authorise her to cross said gallery. Oh. Well, that's so sad. That said, she's not locked in a dungeon, so she's granted the title of uh, the Duchess of Alden, as I said, to maintain the pretense that this is all voluntary, uh, and does have a very generous income. But what? what's the point in that? It's like a it's like a Greek t- uh, tragedy that she can have all the money in the world. Yes, but we just remove the. In, you're a total island mm. yeah. with the knowledge that you've got a family. Horrible. After tireless appeals, her mother is eventually granted the right to visit her, uh, and Sophia uh, and Sophia Dorothea did hope that her compliance would eventually see her be released. Uh, but when Ernest dies in 1698, and thus her husband George becomes the elector of Hanover, she knows her hopes are somewhat diminished. Uh, so she does write to him and her mother-in-law begging to be allowed to see her children again, but neither deign to reply. No. That's so sad. She must just be hoping for for that any minute Max Bonyman smashes through the wall and says, I'm back! <laughs> and releases her. That's her only hope. Well, and in a funny way, that is sort of, not not, not perhaps Max Bonyman, but that's sort of what George is worried about. Because obviously he's deeply humiliated by the whole thing, but it's not just personal, because he is paranoid that one of the many European powers hostile to Hanover will seek to use her against him. In what way could they? From 1701, he's in line to accede to the English and later British throne. So obviously he can do without Sophia Dorothea, causing a huge public embarrassment that might make Britain hmm. wonder whether this is the best dynasty to pin their hopes on for the future but she doesn't give up her hopes of liberty um one moment where it seemed like she might be able to uh leave alden was when the french invaded brunswick and uh because that's getting a bit close to where she is she is sent to cellar and her parents to make sure she doesn't get captured so she reunites with them so she does get to go back her mother's with her regularly and they hope that this could become permanent but her father feeling honor bound to stand by his agreement with george refuses to see her even though she's oh, just he's there him awful man uh, and she is sent back to Alden um, oh. her father's feelings do soften in 1705 he's planning to visit her but tragically catches a cold on a hunting trip that he was doing beforehand and then dies never having seen her again well he didn't really try Sophia Dorothea doesn't give up hope her mother writes to William III and later Queen Anne hoping they'd intercede she even writes to Louis XIV who uh, had uh, obviously sent her into exile all those years ago, but mm. he does offer them a place of her side, but the price would have been to convert to Catholicism, which is too high. Oh, right. Now, Sveidorotay's daughter marries the Crown Prince of Prussia, and he encourages her to write back to her mother in the hope of securing her inheritance, and he implies that he might be able to help, you know, use some influence to secure her release. Uh, with the death of Queen Anne in 1714, George becomes King George I of Great Britain and Jacobite agents hope to 
use the Theodora Tear to undermine the Hanoverian dynasty. But besides an unsuccessful effort from from a few Scots to pay a visit to Alden and acclaim her as Queen of Great Britain, nothing actually comes of this. And similarly, once the Crown Prince of Prussia has established the legalities of her inheritance, he also drops his pretense at intervening to assist her release. So at this point, the King of England has like a private prisoner. He's got his own little personal... Yeah. Prisoner locked up somewhere. Yeah. His wife. <laughs> his wife, yeah, of course. Sort of ex-wife, but yeah. But there will be no escape and no liberty. Sphere Dorothea's life is increasingly empty and mundane, her only excitement being the carriage rides, where apparently she always asks for the horses to be driven at the highest possible speed. Yeah, I bet. Live a little. Her mother died in 1722, and when uh, her daughter visited Hanover in 1725, but uh, despite sort of coming past, fails to visit her at Alden. It's clear that she is really alone in the world. Why didn't she visit? Because she's not allowed? Not allowed. A final disappointment came when her trusted financial advisor was found to have been embezzling her money on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. (laughs) Right, yeah. Uh, Her spirit seems to have been broken and she fell seriously ill, dying on the 13th of November 1726 at the age of 60 having spent the last 33 years of her life at Alden. Well, when we come to review George I, he is feeling a dose of his own medicine. Hmm. And lock him up in a low score. In response to her death, the courts of Hanover and Prussia went into mourning, which was much to the annoyance of George I, whose only concession to observing her death was a brief allusion in the London Gazette while he himself went to the Haymarket Theatre with two mistresses to watch an Italian comedy. What a nasty piece of work. Uh, he had her will seized and destroyed, ensuring that all her property passed to him instead of the children, as intended. So the children are destitute? Well, they're not destitute, because uh, one of them is the you know, the wife of the oh, thing of Prussia, yes. and the other one is going to yeah. become George II. So. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, he wants uh, Severe Dorothea to be quietly and quickly buried at Oldham, but a recent flooding of the river turned the gardens into a swamp, so they literally are unable to force the coffin to sink into the ground just keeps popping up again what a lovely metaphor he keeps trying to put her down and she's always there <laughs> uh, eventually he has her sent to cellar where she's buried at night and without any ceremony a few months later George is back in Germany as he regularly was to visit and according to legend um, after reading a final letter from her suffered a seizure in his carriage and then died not long afterwards oh. fulfilling, fulfilling a prophecy that he would not survive his wife by a year wow this is all so cinematic. <laughs> oh, it just looked gorgeous as well. Mm. So it's like a curse. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so his son, and of course her son, becomes George II, who in appearance and temperament was very much his mother's son. Mm. And he'd been devastated by his mother's imprisonment, and on his father's death brought out a few portraits of her that had been saved and hidden from destruction. And it was rumoured that had she survived George I, he would have had her released and brought to Britain. Yeah. Yeah, surely. Sadly, though, with his accession came his access to all the state archives, and he was shocked when he does actually read the letters, because he'd always assumed that it was all a big lie made up against her. So he's actually quite heartbroken when he finds that she had actually been having an affair. And uh, thus the one man who might have restored her name instead remained very touching the subject and then never spoke of her again, even to his closest friends. So, I mean, what massive feelings he's got to deal with, and it? 
it's just e- at easier at that point to carry on burying it rather than hmm. come up with a whole new narrative, isn't it? So that was the life and, well, non-consortship of Sophia Dorothea of Vertella. We'll review her after a quick break. Battleliness! Sophia Dorothea shows a lot of fighting spirit from the off, throwing George's portrait across the room, shouting that she'd never marry him, refusing to indulge him in his mistresses, instigating furious rows, refusing to surrender to the intensive etiquette of Hanover, continuing to live according to her own... Uh, style and expectations shows plenty of agency most notably by embarking on an affair and going as far as planning to elope yeah she's not going to be leading anyone into battle Mm. but but on a personality level crikey Mm. i mean the story can perhaps be a little bit stock fairy tale we've got the handsome knight rescuing the princess and locked in a tower but she's not a passive player in all of this you know she'd gone to sell her to try and hoodwink her father into giving her an independent financial uh, setup. She'd personally scoured her own marriage contract trying to find a way that she could uh, afford to pay for it all. Yeah, I think that's it's cool. It, to me, she is like a Brothers Grimm character that's been given a modern twist by Disney. You've got Max Bonyman, she's stuck in a tower, but she's also in charge of her own de- destiny. It's oh yeah, let it go, let it go. It's all that. <laughs> Even after Konigsmark's murder, she refused to swallow her pride and go back to George, but insists on ending the marriage. Mm. Throw in a little bit of attempted dabbling with Jacobites, Louis XIV, Prussia, and you can kind of see why, like with Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, that George felt like it was probably better yeah, to keep her under lock and key. Against her, though, for all her agency, her spirit and whatnot, the fact remains that she was discovered, and she does spend the last 33 years, which obviously in 60 is more than half of her life, in a sort of quiet and dull house arrest from which she never really seriously tries to escape. And she nearly got free if she hadn't died. You know, if her brother was there. <laughs> uh, her but son it's not terribly, not terribly battle that we said. She just didn't quite stay in quiet imprisonment long enough <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, to I'm be released by default. I'm thinking about people who've been in prison a long time. Like, who's... Oh, no, Napoleon got free and then... Went about on his business again. Yeah. I mean, I don't die? think Napoleon. Well, he yeah. did also. They ultimately sent him to the most distant, remote island in the entire world. And he did die there eventually. Yeah, eventually. Oh, I never knew that. Uh, who's the other one? Who's the fellow that um, flew Mandel. to Germany? Oh, um, other end of the political spectrum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hess. Hess. You know, he was just kept in prison until. Well, who knows what happened at the end, but. Mm. Because of the danger he represented. Mm. Is this the first time that um, Sophia of Brunswick... What's... Uh, Dorotheus Teller. Has gone... Has been compared to Rudolf Hess. Rudolf Hess, Nelson it. Mandela and Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. So there you go. Super <laughs> battliness. <laughs> and the fact is that her downfall is very much self-inflicted. She seemed to be oblivious to the fact that everyone else knew what was going on. Everyone tried to warn her. Uh, that crucial delay, the tragic cinematic delay where she says, let's just wait one day before we go. Yeah. Which, of course, is quite a, a fatal uh, a fatal delay, albeit completely understandable. But all those uh, things, and then opening the... But the battliness coming back at the end as, as a, a ghost in a letter to polish off George. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, I mean, okay, so... The, you'd, the the film would focus a lot on the first half of the life and probably do a montage for the last bit, yes. but but you'd come out um, Sophia fans. I suppose what I'm saying is in terms of battliness, I guess if we look at her downfall, 
she wasn't very smart about it. She sort of duped a bit or was perhaps just a bit naive about thinking that she was going to just reject their terms, get the divorce and just live the life she wanted to, that that was ever going to be an option. That essentially, you know, she puts up a fight, but she loses, loses badly. And you wouldn't say that she's a terrifying enemy to face. No. A lot of spirit, but... Yeah, because that's true of all the Disney princesses. Mm. They're naive, really, but somehow keep to stick to their guns. But, as you say, it is only a fairy tale ending if it is a fairy tale ending. <laughs> yes. But it's, I really like her. She wants to live... She's continued to live the way she wants to live, even if it means at the cost of her liberty. She doesn't get subsumed into the system. She keeps on being who she is in Hanover. Which is a very 21st century, late 20th century um, (laughs) characteristic to be sought after. Mm. She was playing the Disney version in A Brother's Grim Tale. Yes. And the only thing they had in common was Max Ponyman. Max Ponyman, yeah. So, a score for battliness. I feel like I want to say eight. Yeah, I was sort of initially thinking seven, and I was thinking, well, but I mean, it really is strong agency, isn't it? I, mm. t- I think it just it feels it feels like it gets after more than half of the life ending up being in this quite quiet drab imprisonment. It feels like the balloons sort of deflated somewhat by the end. Mm. So a, I don't a real know life if the points loss. go out with the air of the balloon. Mm. Mm. How big was the balloon? You know? Well, yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm going to come down to seven and a half, I think. I think I'm going to take some points off her for the way that she is sort of a little bit the author of her own downfall and then it all just gets a bit sort of quiet and sad for a long time. I wonder whether I'm going to come down to seven and a half as well because I loathe half points, but I I feel like... <laughs> you could go up to eight and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'll stick with eight. I'll stick with eight. I think... Um, I think the amount that she was imprisoned and the extent to which she, that people went to imprison her um, shows her battliness and they were just too powerful. Yeah, it's a, very, it's a very sort of narrow bit of agency. It is just on that very personal level. She's not, you know, like some of our consorts have been involved in, you know, armies and rebellions and all sorts of battley things, whereas this is much more personal and... I don't, I'm just I was just sort of having a little scroll up the spreadsheet and seeing what some of the other scoring people have got and I was just wondering whether I might come down a another half mark. Because I feel like some of the ones that have got involved in battling battley stuff and lost, mm. we've marked down. And thus I think that given that they were taking on things like war with France or rebellion against your own <laughs> mm. husband, that therefore she takes on trying to marry somebody else and losing she should also get marked down. So I'm going to go down half mark. I'm going to go down to a seven. So a seven for me, an eight from you. There's no half marks. Fifteen for battliness. Scandal. Well, I mean, you don't have your bell anymore, but if you did, I'm pretty sure it would have I'll been be, dinging. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be shaking it all over the place. Uh, she had a reputation of being high-spirited, willful. There were you know, rumours of indiscretions even before her relationship with Konigsmark. At the age of 12, her governess was dismissed for failing to stop her exchanging love letters with a young page at the cellar court. Uh, she is a Disney princess who's just in love with the idea of love, isn't she? Once married, the uh, rakish Marquis de Lassay bragged about having an affair with her in Venice. 
though this wasn't given any credence by anybody in her family. But the biggie, of course, is the fact that she has this affair with Philip von Konigsmark. You know, some of our previous consorts are thought to have had affairs, but with Sophia we get an attempted elopement leading to her lover being assassinated and Sophia imprisoned in a castle for over 30 years. Yeah, and leaving a curse in a final letter. <laughs> leaving a curse in... And as we discussed, they're remarkably indiscreet. Their intimate letters are easily discovered. Mm. They often have a very sort of teenage feel to them. So this is uh, Sophia writing in 1692. I was so changed and depressed today that even the prince my husband pitied me and said I was ill and that I ought to take care of myself. He is right. I am ill. But my illness comes only from loving you and I wish never to be cured. If that isn't the um, runway into a song... <laughs> with a chorus of birds from around the bottom of the tower. I don't know what it is. But it is straightforward affairs. Mm. There's not anything else that we usually look for. It does get a little bit a little bit racier. Here's Conig's Mark writing to her in sixteen ninety three. Ye gods, what a night I spent. Why cannot I now take wings like my desire? I should at this moment be in your lovely arms, tasting the sweet delights of your lips as I did then. He also yep. wrote of his having la petite morte in her embrace, by which he means uh, climaxing. And yeah, her little death. Mm, and her calling out to him, My dear Koenig, let's do it together. Crikey, Graham, are you sure you've been reading the right books? <laughs> now, it's understandable that George isn't best pleased to read these letters, mm. but the worst of it was when Koenig's mark expressed jealousy at Sophia Dorothea potentially being intimate with her husband for duty's mm. sake. And she quickly reassured him that George was a very poor lover and she was longing for him to die in battle though, so that she could be with Konigsmark instead. But it is, I mean, but it is all, it's absolutely stereotypical, spot on, love, unrequited, mm -hmm. or oh, I suppose it is requited. But, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> very <laughs> um, much requited. <laughs> we've had other people whose scandal is, is as well as that. There's been deaths and, mm. well, there is death. I mean, he does get murdered, doesn't he? Yeah. And then she's locked away because of the size of the scandal. I feel like it's another eight. Now, technically, it's well before George becomes King George in Britain, but it's a huge scandal across Europe. And indeed, the fact that the new king arrives in Britain with a mistress uh, in tow while his wife is locked away in a castle and her lover having mysteriously disappeared was used to spread discontent by Jacobites who even sort of put it about that George II is illegitimate. Yeah, I mean, you do, that is, that's a big old weapon to hang around. Mm. I mean, that definitely isn't true. Time is a way off for that. But still, you can see how it's, mm. it remains a scandal. You know, that would once be, he has become king, it's still a big issue. That would be the um, concern that is shouted around the room when they're like, what shall we do? And you say, but if these people get hold of it, then they'll be saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's also, there's the, so there is the genuine scandal, mm. the size of the cover-up and the potential scandal uh, you know, the potential for exploitation of this scandal. Mm, yeah. um, I mean, that it is actually quite big on its own. Yeah, and I guess you can say that, you know, some of the scandalous elements, you know, she's not murdering Philip, she's not imprisoning herself, that's Ernest, that's George the mm. First. But I don't know, I feel like it all just forms part of the picture. Even if she's not perpetrated that, it's part of her thing. Yeah. The only thing it's against good. it, I suppose, is the fact that Sophia Dorothea always denied committing what she called the crime, i.e., an actual a full-on physical affair with him. She claimed that they didn't, though the correspondence between them and the evidence of other people seems pretty convincing they probably did. But 
I yeah, I'm sticking with eight. It feels really quite punchy. Yeah, I was wondering about more than that. I mean, you know, it's, it's a full-on affair. As I said, we've got the then the lover being murdered, the imprisonment. But, but I know it's not her, but it's uh, just yeah. it, feels it is like big. It's all one great big. It feels like a lot of the scandal is in the way she's treated, and it should be George the First scandal of having a private prisoner. But I feel like if it's a cake, she makes up a lot of the ingredients, and whilst there are other ingredients that make it a bigger, yeah. tastier cake. She is the key. If without her, if she's the chocolate and the chocolate cake, mm. it's that's the main it's thing. Yeah, yeah. This is George the first chocolate cake. Yum yum yum. It tastes an awful lot like Dorothea. Sophia. Yeah. So for for her role in that chocolate cake, I don't know what it would take me push me over to a nine. What else do you need in Scandal usually? I'm going to go nine. It's going to be eight. I'll go nine. I liked her. <laughs> So that's an 18 for Scandal, a very high start. Booyah. Subjectivity. Well, during her imprisonment at Alden, she was celebrated quite a few good deeds, paying for the repair and redecoration of the local church, gifting it an organ. She provided significant funds to the town after it suffered a serious fire in 1715, uh, also gave alms to the poor, and despite her confinement in the castle, she was, <laughs> in a way, quite a significant figure in the local community. Sorry. I like the idea. I was playing with the idea that she'd given a, a kidney as an organ to the church and then gave out arms to other people. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've got to say, I think it's pretty hard otherwise, really, to think of anything positive to say for subjectivity. She doesn't exactly dedicate her imprisonment, the whole of her imprisonment, to good deeds. So she continues just spending most of her money buying dresses and jewellery and living like an electoral princess. And the fact that she is prepared to cause such a huge scandal and elope with a military officer suggests her sense of duty and devotion is perhaps not a defining feature. And also, of course, you know, this is technically a series about the consorts of uh, England and Britain, as it now is, and we'll get on to the fact that she technically isn't one at all, but, you know, she never actually even sets foot in Britain, never mind having any kind of real personal impact. Yeah, but for this, for this, I'm pretending that I'm a citizen of Hanover. But for Hanover, what have you got, really? Exactly. No, but still nothing. I can't think of anything. I mean, absolutely, she's got other stuff going on. But for 33 years, all we've really got is that she donates generously to the church funds a couple of times. But for 33 years, I've been locked in a <laughs> tower in Alden. Alden? <laughs> um, zero. Zero, I'm afraid. It's got to be zero for subjectivity. Longevity. If... She had still been married to George I when he became King of Britain. Then her consortship would have been from the 1st of August 1714 to her death on the 13th of November 1726, which would have been 12 mm-hmm. years, three months. Uh, so 12.25 years, which would give her a score of 8.5, 34th best overall. Still not good. But, of course, she wasn't married to him. Now, the only caveat is that under English law, George I couldn't remarry while she, as his living first wife, was still living. Right. So, in a way, she is still a factor when it comes to who was or wasn't queen. He couldn't marry anybody else in England because he was sort of still married to her. And we, you know, we did Elskeeve of Northampton, who was given a longevity score, despite the fact that although she was married to Canute, she wasn't actually his queen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what would that give her? Elfgiver. No, no. Um, uh, did we give Elfgiver full points for the time that she wasn't... You know, we did that... score her, yeah. 
I think we give the score because they were mucking around with the whole concept right at the start. Half <laughs> marriage, not marriage. And he couldn't get married until she died anyway. Let's mm. score it. So, eight and a half. Oh, yeah. Still not good. Dynasty. Not the pro. Sophia and George had two legitimate children, the King of Britain and the Queen of Prussia. That's pretty good, yeah. And indeed, uh, the, her daughter was the mother of Frederick the Great. So, Sophia Dorothea is also thus the grandmother of Frederick the Great. Wow. Two Children gives her a score of 10, which is the joint 26th for the series. Yeah. So that gives her a total score of 51.5. Oh, man. Tell you what, if that subjectivity score was up, she'd be all right. She'd be doing very well, wouldn't she? So that's actually quite... That would put her in that 17th. That's far out of the 51 that we've reviewed, including her. But, of course, it's not all about the scores. Does she have that certain something, the lasting legacy, the great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Well, you're going to have to persuade me quite hard not to. Well, it's a dramatic story, obviously. Dark fairy tale, romance, imprisonment, one of the most sort of obviously cinematic of the series. Mm. I I think we've got a pretty obvious problem in the fact that she wasn't consort. Oh, no. She wasn't the queen consort. Indeed, never even goes to Britain. Oh, how 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 pedantic are we going to be? I, I mean, I think I might be fairly pedantic. You know, the marriage is ended over a decade before George becomes king. And also, I think regardless of this, the colour and drama of the first 27 years are kind of diminished by the following 33, where she's just in close confinement to old and wings are clipped. It's a very sad and protracted end to the story, but, you know... Nothing much well, I like after. I like surrounding myself with a bit of pedantry because I think it's important. <laughs> I, otherwise, I'm liable to go off on one, uh, and it keeps things ordered. So I'll accept that. And in a way, you could say that actually the 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 great drama and everything that comes is really the stuff that kind of goes wrong, rather than I don't know that actually she herself would have been a spectacular, starry mm. character or consort. Mm. I quite like the idea of her and um, Oliver Cromwell having to make small talk in a green room while all the other X Factor winners are on stage and we're not quite decided on them. Yeah, I think that's... I'm happy with that. I think that's right. <laughs> I, was, I, I, I dipped my finger into the well of impassioned argument and it wasn't quite so full. You had your little Sophia moment. <laughs> yeah. I think a passion and then quietly just got subsumed into yeah. accepting a less exciting world. Yeah, which ultimately polished her off. Well, that's a shame, but still, I th- I'm uh, I like that she got. We couldn't give it to her on a technicality. <laughs> it's one of those where, like, we could have just not done her at all um, yeah. as a not console. But I yeah. thought it's too interesting a story not to cover, and I think it is relevant to say George couldn't remarry in Britain because yeah. he was sort of, but not married to her so it's still kind of a valid thing and of course you know, she's the whilst he was her. king is the thing yeah and yeah. She's, she is the mother of George II yeah so an excellent story and very obviously ultimately a very tragic story mm. a fascinating story but it's a no to the Rex Factor but I uh, know I'm, I'm happy with that Correspondence Corner so that was Sophia Dorothea of Zeller let us know what you thought about her and whether you would have uh, given her the benefit of the doubt or not included her at all potentially find us on twitter x and instagram at rexfactorpod email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com and remember to send in a hashtag consort cards for an episode image for Sophia Dorothea oh gosh yeah that's got to be an easy one isn't it it's Disney princess locked in a tower 
If you'd like to support the podcast, be sure to subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to over 200 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Rosie Wilkinson, Elizabeth Clancy, Ruth Watkin, Shannon McMinimi, Josiah Proyas, Cornelia Bernstein, Elizabeth Hutton-Barber, Nina Oswald, Riza Bowers, Lindsay Bray, Claire, Kelly Williams, Raina Tyre, Tu Huang, Judy Kington Duong, Emily Corman, Rebecca Parkinson, Helen Cousins, Millie, Demian Talman, Jenna English, David K. Heidenreich, Rex and Saurus, Mandy Leifar, Kate Shoesmith, and a Christmas present for Sarah Merrigan. Merrigan Christmas. Hey, you love a pun. That was actually a Christmas present from uh, December 2022, so apologies that we've managed to be late for two Christmases. (laughs) So that's it for us today. Next time we will be reviewing the first Hanoverian consort proper, Caroline of Ansbach, wife and consort to George II. George II? Yes. What, George I doesn't marry again? No. We just discussed this, haven't we? Because he couldn't, because he was married to Severe Dorothea. But did she die first? Well, yeah, because you remember, because she dies, and then... Oh, and the curse in the letter. Of course, yeah, of course. Sorry, I'll go back and have a listen. <laughs> right, cheers. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>